Hello, welcome to Episode 3 of The Tar Sands Diplomat, 2016's best and only Canadian satirical diplomatic thriller, read by the author, Keith Halliday. For more information, visit keithhalliday.com. And if you have a comment, send an email to khalliday at tarsandsdiplomat.com. If it's a positive comment, you can ignore Keith and put it directly on Amazon in the Tar Sands Diplomat reviews, please. Now, from the podcast cave, here's the author, Keith Halliday. The Tar Sands Diplomat, Chapter 4, The Duchess of Richmond's Ball. The Duchess of Richmond's Ball was probably Cornelia's first taste of the profession's heyday. The notion that diplomats still go to balls is persistent, particularly among the mothers of new recruits. However, the closest thing in Ottawa is the annual Foreign Service Officer of the Year Award Dinner, where we assemble over National Arts Centre boiled chicken and boxed wine to listen to octogenarian former ambassadors read incredulously from descriptions of the winner's exploits during the Canada-Costa Rica sectoral free trade negotiations. Most people wear business attire, although a few don the white and black. Canadian diplomats used to have a uniform with a sword designed by our High Commissioner in London during the 1940s, after he got tired of being outshone at parties by the governor of the Falkland Islands, but the last man to wear it was taken away by personnel many years ago. So it was swordless, but with a smashing bow tie, that I arrived at the ball. Madame, I said breathlessly, in my best French, to the woman at the desk, I've just flown in from an isolated northern capital where the snow blows viciously down lifeless concrete boulevards, and they never have balls. When back in Paris or Brussels, I like to practice my most ornate French phraseology on concierges and ticket clerks. They always respond well. Madame eyed me with sympathy as she scanned the seating chart. Minsk must be terrible. I'm sorry, but the only seats left are at the Canadian table. She smiled sympathetically. I quickly found our table, thanks to Cornelia's garish orange dress. A silver stand on the table held a small card with the word overflow, scratched out and replaced in Cornelia's handwriting by Canada. I took my seat beside a well-dressed old biddy, apparently the widow of a South African oil magnate. It wasn't clear what she was doing at the Canadian table. Perhaps they owned an all-white oil company in Alberta. On my other side was Cornelia. I remembered the dully hostile expression on her face from the day she joined the minor Eastern European statelet section for her training rotation, except that it was now partly obscured by too much makeup and the 20 pounds she had gained eating Brussels dinners. Her hair was pulled sharply back into a bun, which, combined with her makeup, made her look like a synchronized swimmer with a scowl painted on instead of a forced smile. There was an empty chair for Julian. Our ambassador was at one of the front tables making friends and influencing people. The table was filled out with the president of the Canada-Belgium Chamber of Commerce and his arch-nemesis, the president of the Canada-Europe Chamber of Commerce. The Belgian chamber loathed the European chamber for acting superior, while the Europe chamber resented the Belgians trying to insinuate themselves into its business, just because the European institutions happened to be based in Brussels. Both worried about a repeat of the time Dunscap forgot to invite one of them to a ministerial dinner, and the Canadian mission had to triangulate between the antagonists, like Henry Kissinger with the Egyptians and Israelis. As we were at the back of the hall, I picked up the lorgnette, or opera binoculars, as Cornelia once called them, and attempted to scan the room. They refused to focus and transformed the room into a disorienting kaleidoscope of billowing ostrich feathers and swirling ball gowns. When Cornelia's orange gown came into my field of vision, I nearly vomited. Try these, said the old biddy, pulling a pair of bird-watching binoculars out of her purse. She quickly pointed out a brace of Belgian princes, a cabinet minister or two, and a famous Flemish television personality. The room is awash in Belgian celebrities, I noted politely. 
I spotted the British ambassador, who was dressed like Admiral Nelson's butler, with an ostrich feather of his own and a sword. He was seated with Sir William Friddle, the European commissioner responsible for trade, whom someone was supposed to convert into a fanatic pro-Canadian during the Can-Do Canada trade mission. He was listening, expressionlessly, to the latest Flemish talk show jokes when he appeared to notice something. His lip turned down into a derisive, slightly amused sneer. I followed his eye and found myself examining our ambassador, who was in turn pointing his lorgnette at Friddle. I watched as Ambassador Glostrom adjusted the focus of his lorgnette and noticed Sir William's sneer magnified at eight times its normal malignancy. Glostrom started in alarm, somehow jabbing the ivory eyepiece painfully into his exposed cornea. Oh dear, I said, possibly out loud. The widow seemed to read my mind. It beggars belief that Canada would send someone like that to Brussels, she said. Cornelia and her orange dress took umbrage at this. He's a former cabinet minister, she protested. Exactly, replied the old woman. A former minister of sport, if I recall, and not a very distinguished one either. Secretary of State for amateur sport, replied Cornelia, showing off her pedantic side. Julian suddenly appeared beside me and shook my hand vigorously. Mr. Overflow, I presume. He was in his usual cheerful mood. McGregor, you may be famous inside the department for your lint trap mind, he joked with a smile as he sat down, but I think you may have met your match with this charming lady's encyclopedic knowledge. I raised an eyebrow in interest. I had noted that she knew somehow that Ambassador Glostrom previously embarrassed the country as Minister of Sport. Julian continued, McGregor, answer this one. What is the difference between light and heavy oil? Their weight, I guessed. Aha, chortled Julian in mock triumph. That is exactly the glib answer we would expect from a diplomat who doesn't know his West Texas intermediate from his Brent crude. He turned to the oil magnate's widow. The old lady smiled. As everyone knows, heavy oil is denser and more viscous. It doesn't flow well at all. Most people call heavy oil anything with an API gravity less than 20 degrees. She winked at Cornelia. You should have taken petrochemical engineering, my dear. It's a good way to meet rich oil men. Okay, McGregor, said Julian. We'll give you a chance to redeem yourself. Name a port in Western Europe that has an oil terminal that can handle heavy oil. I had an inkling about this one. One of the many things Belgium doesn't get any respect for is its surprisingly large petrochemical industry. I recalled seeing plenty of large, toxic-looking smokestacks on my tour of World War II battlegrounds along the Belgian coast. Antwerp, I guessed. The table gave me a round of ironic applause. Cornelia cleared her throat. She was about to say something. She reminded me powerfully of Mary Bennett from Pride and Prejudice, plain and not as talented as she thought she was. Whenever Cornelia spoke at meetings, I got that sensation that Mr. Bennett must have felt whenever Mary was about to play the piano in public. Except instead of bad piano, Cornelia tormented listeners with jargon she'd learned at business school. There's a paradigm shift in European energy going on, said Cornelia. She talked about how North Sea oil was running out while Libyan and Iraqi light oil supplies were still in chaos. The Russians were always offering to sell more energy to Europe, but no one wanted to be even more reliant on them after what they'd been up to recently. That leaves the Antwerp terminal, continued Cornelia. The blue sky opportunity is tapping into the glut of Canadian and Venezuelan heavy oil, which is trading 10 or 20 bucks less a barrel than Brent. Could be a win-win for Canada and Europe going forward. Not bad, I thought. Underneath the NBA dribble, there was an idea somewhere. Everyone around the table nodded. I didn't remember oil talk being a staple of Brussels dinner parties. I was about to ask when the Duchess of Richmond's ball 
had turned into the Calgary Stampede when I noticed a familiar but surprising face across the room. By the way, is that really Maxime Moshinsky over there headed for the bar? I asked. He was unmistakable, tall with a broad face on a big round head. He was bald on top with a greasy comb-over that only a Russian billionaire could wear in public without being mocked. The last time I'd seen him in Moscow, he was down to his last billion after a better-connected oligarch had squeezed him out of his Siberian oil fields. What's he doing here? I have a hard time believing he's taken an interest in the Napoleonic Wars or philanthropic balls. We watched Mashinsky as he moved slowly towards the bar. He smiled and shook hands with various other guests and exchanged nods with Sir William Friddle and another man as he passed their table. He seems to know the right people, noted the widow. Yes, said Julian. That's Nigel Merton with Friddle. They were in the House of Commons together in London. Friddle was a minister, but Merton never made it off the backbench. He's some kind of lobbyist in Brussels now. Ah, yes, said the old lady. My husband and I met them in Joburg once. He was tagging along on one of Friddle's trips. She went on to tell us about how her husband's company was listed in London and that Nigel Merton had approached them raising money when Friddle was thinking of running for party leader. I watched Merton for a minute. He was overweight, with a bald spot on top, and too much hair around the sides. In his tuxedo, he looked like a mad concert pianist. He was smiling as he talked to the woman beside him, while his eyes darted around the room. We watched Mashinsky cruise past a few more tables, smiling and shaking hands. I hear Mashinsky is kissed and made up with the Kremlin, said Julian. Mashinsky had dabbled at being a media magnate, even allowing his TV news station to go after corruption stories among friends of the Kremlin. That was over now, and he was back in the oil business. His new company had a big oil field in Yamal, on the Arctic coast, and he had wangled a Russian export permit for tanker shipments to Europe. He was often in the London papers, reported to be wheeling and dealing to get his oil into Europe. He started out as a math whiz, I pointed out, one of the youngest lecturers at Moscow State University. Sure, said Julian, but I think he became a lot more interesting when he left math and somehow got his hands on an oil refinery in the Yeltsin privatizations. We pondered the profits you could make if you were the only PVC producer in a country with a billion drafty Soviet-era wooden windows and a climate worse than Ottawa's. The old lady, who appeared to be more plugged in than most Canadian ambassadors, reminded us he was close to the Kremlin, but apparently not so close that he was on the Russian sanctions list. Every crisis has a silver lining for someone, she said sardonically. Exactly, replied Julian. I'm sure he's wheeling and dealing as fast as he can. Whatever oil deal he's working on here, he's got to get it done before something else happens and the EU adds him to the sanctions list. Moshinsky approached the bar, choosing a spot beside a tall and shapely blonde woman. Moshinsky said something to her. She turned her head, then did a double take. Her eyes bulged for a split second as she realized who she was talking to. Good Lord, I exclaimed. That's Kennedy Percival. What's someone from the Canadian mission doing talking to Maxime Mashinsky? The old lady laughed. I suspect he doesn't know she's from the Canadian mission. He probably just thinks she'd be a nice ornament for his yacht in Sardinia. Kennedy quickly recovered her poise. She was one of my favorite foreign service officers, and I'd been looking forward to working with her again. I'd have to ask Julian later why she wasn't seated at the overflow table with the rest of the lepers from Ottawa and Minsk. She was now turned towards Mashinsky. The old lady was right. Kennedy was perhaps the best-looking woman at the ball. With her bob haircut, she looked young and athletic. Her well-fitted dress had obviously not been bought at the same shop as Cornelia's Guantanamo orange décolletage, and its sleeveless top revealed Kennedy's well-toned upper arms. She recovered quickly from her early shock 
and was now conversing easily with Mashinsky. Her face had that ultra-serious look she gets when she explains something technical to an older Foreign Service officer who assumes she's a secretary. The old lady had noticed her before. Your colleague is sitting with the current Duchess of Richmond's nephew, Hugh Redson, and that's his wife Imogen, the editor of London Newthink. Yes, replied Julian. She has really traded up from the overflow table. Wasn't Redson's father in Thatcher's cabinet? That's right, replied the old lady. We knew him in South Africa after he retired. He was on some boards with my husband. Hugh and Imogen's country house was just in Hello magazine. I saw it on the plane. Yes, Kennedy was in that issue, said Cornelia excitedly, apparently slightly starstruck. Yes, that was her hand in the Stilton close-up, replied Julian, with slightly exaggerated awe. Not bad for a girl from Edmonton. If she keeps hanging around with the rich and famous, her elbow may make the cut next time. I took Julian aside when Cornelia and the widow were distracted by the door prize ritual. What's going on, I asked. He sounded like one of those foreign service officers who gets bitter and envious when someone else is successful. I thought he was above that kind of thing. Julian sighed. Yes, you're right but I've just spent the last few months in a career duel with Kennedy. I think she has the Machiavelli app on her BlackBerry. She's become very grabby about any files with visibility at the top, especially if the PMO is involved. And remember how I told you that Fanshawe kept a copy of Creative Belgian Cuisine by the chef of Comche Soie in his office so he could impress us with his elaborate lunch orders? Well, hidden in Kennedy's desk is a copy of the Principles of Petrochemical Engineering. She keeps surprising people in Ottawa by telling them about bitumen and sulfur content. She is from Alberta, I pointed out. Perhaps it's a natural interest, or maybe she's one of those people who had a real job before they joined the department. Julian shook his head. Last year, she didn't give a damn about bitumen, and now she's cultivating oil and gas people. You see her out for lunch with oil lobbyists in Brussels, or going to London for the weekend and coming back with tales of city investment bankers. The Prime Minister mentioned oil when he announced Can Do Canada, I said. Not first, but it's on our list of European irritants. True, replied Julian, but Kennedy isn't showing so much interest in Frankenstein canola or baby seals. I think she's working on a backup plan to leave the department. Leave the department? I was astounded. People don't leave the department. They just get transferred to the culture division and slowly become invisible, like the Cheshire cat, but without the smile. Julian went on. You know what Gary Henshaw and Legal Branch says. You need at least $5 million in the bank before you join the Foreign Service. He's never said that to me. What do you mean? That our salaries are a joke. If you have $5 million and make 5%, then you have 250000 a year to get by on in addition to your Foreign Service hobby. I thought about that for a moment. I'll let you speak to that at next year's rookie briefing, I said. Hey, don't get mad at me. I don't have $5 million either. Look at these shoes I'm wearing. Anyway... Kennedy's always talking about the people she's met at these New York firms. Interesting work, travel to interesting places, people the same age as her, no more talented, making decisions, giving advice to CEOs, appearing on CNN, making five to ten times as much money. The crowd stirred as a Belgian accountant prepared to draw the door prize. And the winner of the wine donated kindly by the Canadian mission is, intoned the MC. But what about public service, I asked. The grandeur of diplomacy, the prestige... I trailed off, and Julian and I turned to watch. And the winner is... Ambassador Glostrom of Canada, trilled the MC. Our leader's fist shot into the air in enthusiasm. Winning the Canadian wine. What a coincidence. Oh, God, said Julian. He'll make us drink that rot gut at staff parties, and then claim it on his expenses. That wraps up episode three. 
Thanks for listening to the Tarzan's Diplomat. I hope you enjoyed it. Check your iTunes feed next week for episode four. If you need a gift for your favorite Canadian diplomat or Russian oligarch, the book's available on Amazon. In the meantime, for more information or to leave a comment, visit keithhalliday.com or send an email to khalliday at tarsansdiplomat.com.